Welcome to the Elevate Your People podcast, a place to be refreshed and energized by work again. I'm your host, Danielle Dietz. Let's talk about how we can create an environment for your people and results to thrive. I'm excited to kick off the first podcast with my good friend, Elizabeth Kristen. I give more of an intro to her in the podcast, but the gist is she's a seriously smart and successful woman. She started in the traditionally male-dominated insurance industry and became a name partner who helped build a now national public company, BKS Partners. I do want to note we recorded this podcast in person, so the audio sounds a little different. In our conversation, we dive into how to compete for talent differently through emphasizing experiences, not just a checklist of benefits, how to adapt the business and culture during hard times to come out stronger, the importance of authenticity in your company brand and culture, and the impact of paying it forward. Enjoy. Welcome to the Elevate Your People podcast. I'm here with Elizabeth Kristen. I'm going to go into a big intro for her, but then allow her to talk about herself some. So Elizabeth Kristen is a founding partner of BKS. So she also is a board member on Arise Alliance, Academy Prep, Tampa Prep. She's a session member, which essentially is a board member of First Prize of Tampa. And she also is on the USF MUMA College of Business Executive Advisory Board, and really just a pioneer in the benefits, HR, insurance, like all-encompassing space. So it's a pleasure to have you. She's also my friend and mentor too. <laughs> well, it's it's so sweet of you to ask me to be here. And I think pioneer translates to many, many, many years of experience. <laughs> so that might be why. But, no um, substitute for experience though. So own the, own the pioneer. <laughs> so in addition to all that other stuff, I would just add that I've been married to my husband, Rick, who I met at uh, USF back before dinosaurs run the earth, probably. <laughs> and we have two college kids and we live in Tampa and are just grateful for the community and the opportunity to share with your listeners a little bit about my story and there may be something that would be helpful for them. So that'd be my wish. Definitely. You're a wealth of knowledge. So I'm really excited just for this conversation and for people to pick up tidbits of how you've really navigated, not only growing your career initially, but then scaling a business that you started and yeah, how you've made it enjoyable for you and the people that work alongside you throughout. Awesome. So how did you get started in the benefits space? You majored in finance at mm-hmm. USF. There wasn't a, there wasn't at the time, there wasn't a degree in risk management and insurance. And if there was, I might not have thought of it as a, as a degree anyway, although I did take an insurance course at USF and I loved it, but it was, I took a night class to avoid driving down to Sarasota where all my friends were because they heard the professor in Sarasota was easier than this night professor wow. who taught advanced corporate finance. And um, I was assigned to a group with a woman who was going to school at night. She was the assistant risk manager of Spalding and Evenflow, which is a company that was headquartered in Tampa. And we just became friends. So my first job out of college, I worked for GTE MobileNet back when cell phones were really expensive and people financed them or leased them. And it wasn't a very challenging job because like many new graduates, I thought I knew everything. So when they offered me a promotion to move to Houston, I said, I can't go. I'm in love. But now that you mention it, I don't really love my job. So she said her broker was looking for someone and I didn't know what that was, but a consultant sounded fancy and it sounded like it would be an opportunity for me to continue to learn and that I could get paid to talk. And I guess I had something to say. Yes. So I somehow got the job and, and the organization was a small agency at the time. Lowry Baldwin, who's now considered an industry veteran, had maybe six years more experience than I did, but we worked really well together. And he helped me think about 
problem solving from a creative perspective and how to evolve the services that we were offering to meet the changing demands of our clients at the time. Wow. So far more personal approach to it, really connecting with your clients and how you could help anticipate. Yes. I was really grateful to have found that position because at the time, almost all client facing roles in insurance were held by men. And it, if you were a female, whether you had a college degree or not, you were probably like back in the office, quote, working a desk managing the paperwork. Now, thankfully, our industry doesn't really have a lot of paperwork anymore. So really any job that you would have in insurance could be challenging. So as far as what drove you to continue to progress, and it sounds like you were a part of a great team, had a great mentor, really fulfilling. Also that female element too. What made you want to continue to stay in the space and make this your sole career? That's a good question. I probably was working too much and too hard to have thought that through <laughs> completely at the time. And all of a sudden, you know, so many years so passed. But um, Outback Steakhouse was one of my very first clients. They had one restaurant and they offered benefits to seven employees. Wow. And I'm sure that they did not want to talk to me about insurance, but they did. And as they grew, they challenged us to come up with new products and solutions. And they started offering benefits to their part-time kitchen staff and to their servers which hadn't been done at the time. And it was because it was in cultural alignment with who they were. And they said, we want you to figure out how you're going to market it to our employees. So I figured out how to market it to our employee, the employee's parents. Cause I thought, you know, every parent wants their child to be insured. Yeah, I'm sure your mother's very proud of you. Yes, you yes definitely. Big check mark. Yes. Um, and we had to figure out how we were going to help them administrate it. So we got into a whole different type of business because they let us grow with them. Uh, and that to me was invaluable. And then I recognized how quickly insurance landscape changes. I mean, think about it. We're insuring products that didn't even exist 10 years ago. And the complexity of taking care of your people, given what's going on in society today has never been more important. So for me, it's always just been a huge challenge. And having started at a small firm, I got to, I got to do a little bit of every job to find out what I liked. Now, I liked most every job I ever took on, whether it was like accounting for the revenue or maybe I didn't love making copies, but I love putting together the books because it was a reflection of my thought process and work. And, and in doing that, I got to do a lot of different things. Now you could take an online assessment. Oh yeah. That'll and, route you too. To the right thing. But this was a little bit of, you know, try it and see what you like and like everything. Yeah. And that could, who knows, contribute to your success because you have the breadth of experience. So as you continue to get more high level and especially creating new programs, you understood all the elements that go into play. I think that was helpful for a while. At some point you realize that the specialists do no more than the jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. um, so I would always defer to someone who had that specialized knowledge, but there's probably not a lot in the employee benefit space that I wouldn't have some level of knowledge on. Yeah. Or so, at some point in your, yeah. in your experience. And, and remain interested in learning more. So is that really how you honed in further within the insurance space into benefits was Outback being an example, but really kind of helping scale their business? Um, I wouldn't give myself any credit for helping them scale their <laughs> business. But what I would say is that we took a big burden of taking care of their people in a very specific way. I think Outback did a remarkable job of giving opportunities for people to have ownership and sort of have that entrepreneurial mindset mm -hmm. that is, I think, incredibly helpful. And what's made our economy so strong is all these people willing to step out on a limb and do something different. You're doing what I'm doing. I mean, that takes entrepreneurial guts. And they certainly did that. So we could take care of the kind of the back of the back of the house, meaning making sure that if they did get hurt on the job, that their situation was resolved successfully and quickly, that if something happened to them and they couldn't work, we had coverage for that. If they got sick 
and couldn't do their job and make a living, we were able to provide support for them. And I think that's, I've always thought about what we do as being very purpose-driven. So for me, it was, it was an easy, an easy fix. Now, when we started what is now BKS in 2006, and if you don't remember all that back then, it was right before the economy tanked. We went into just a a lot of debt with this idea that we could serve entrepreneurs with their personal insurance needs, their commercial needs, their employee benefits. Now, my fellow founding partners, Larry Baldwin, knew commercial insurance, Laura Sherman is expert in private risk. So it made sense that we would specialize in three things that we knew about. But what I found to be most challenging and interesting was when we started, we couldn't compete for talent. If all we were going to do was provide benefits as good as everyone else. We had sold our firm to a bank. Mm-hmm. I mean, their sort of benefit strategy was you get free health insurance and you get a pension plan and you get a pension plan and it, we just couldn't compete. So we had to think about it differently, less about the insurance products that we would offer our new colleagues who are taking a chance to be kind of pioneers with us mm-hmm. and more about the experiences we would hope to deliver to them should they choose to continue their career at BKS. So that entrepreneurial approach to this, is that what really kind of started to permeate the, the cultural tone that you guys set here at BKS? I think so. It, it's two things. One is if we couldn't offer all the litany of benefits that say a Fortune 500 could, we could talk about experiences and autonomy and flexibility that the larger organizations weren't willing to do. But when we originally started the firm in 2006, we, there was four of us. And when the economy was going down, our clients were letting go of employees. They were, their sales were lower because people weren't mm-hmm. spending like they were. So the premiums that they were paying were lower. Mm-hmm. So the revenue that we were receiving was lower. And I think during hard times, what I would say now is that when times get tough, people become more of what they already are. And so I was a get it done person. So I'm out you know, talking to every prospective client, existing client that I can, making sure that we're taking care of them, talking to prospective clients about how we can have more value. So while we won't be able to necessarily reduce their healthcare costs if they're a 30 person group, because those rates are established by the state, we can add additional value added benefits that's giving them more value and support their, their HR functions in a way that doesn't cost them anymore. But our fourth partner, if you become more of what you are, became more controlling and it was his way to kind of ride this out. We all had our ways. Some mm-hmm. of them were more productive than others. But when we were doing that, we realized that we had a disconnect with our values. There'd be meetings and, and he wouldn't come. So then we would reach a consensus from the three of us and there'd be an outlier. So now instead of him having a 25% vote, he had a 50% vote. And that was difficult. So ultimately at the end of 2010, we agreed to separate ways. We bought him out of our clients. He bought us out of his clients. And we asked all the colleagues, actually, there's probably, there's probably 17, but I'm remembering 50, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we anywhere said, in that range. Anywhere <laughs> in that range. Would you, you want to live with mom or dad? Cause we're getting a divorce. And that was very traumatic for the organization. Now, wow. both organizations, fortunately thrived very well after the, the professional breakup. Yes. yes. And I think, you know, our colleagues were all happy with the decisions they made, whether it was to stay or to go, to, to go. but at that time, We never wanted to have people question what our values were. So we sat down for several months and basically tried to codify, put language around our personalities as individuals and what we brought to the partnership so that we could then say, this is our culture. And it became a document that we call the azimuth, which we've called sort of ultimately everyone's boss because we're all accountable to this Mm -hmm. aspirational way of um, showing up for each other. And also we've called it our cultural constitution, because if you make a mistake here, 
And if you go to the azimuth and say, what does it say to do? All mistakes are forgiven. So I like being a part of an organization that's imperfect improvement. You know, we're always trying to get better. I hope that when people see me, one of the things that they use to describe me in a nice way would be grit. We talked probably a week about the difference between grit and resilience. And I think resilience is elegant and sounds very much like a spa experience. Mm-hmm. And grit sounds a little like a tough mutter. Yes. Yeah, you're <laughs> in it. You're in it. And to me, it's more emotional. And it also shows the passion that we have for the business. So I think sort of codifying our culture, what's important to us, was very important as we grew when we were in new geographies. If you went to the azimuth and says, what does it say? How should we address this issue? Even if it's wrong, we can still learn something from it. Along those same lines, I'm really excited about the fact that we have this thing called BKS 2020. So after any kind of you know important experience, whether it be sitting down to do a podcast or a big client renewal or to talk to a new prospective client, afterwards, the team gets together and assesses what each of us did and crushed it and where we maybe took a misstep and where maybe we would do better next time. And I think it all starts with us as leaders, regardless of your role, is to start first and say, mm-hmm. you know, I think I had a strong opening and then I got too detailed in this area. And I think I lost or I wasn't focused on their question. I was so anxious to answer what I thought they were asking that I missed the point. And that idea that we can always get better is, I think, really important. That's great how that's modeled. I mean, because uh, that's what I was going to note is going from say 17 to 50, but with the split, you know, probably smaller individuals with those values to now thousands. How were you and your partners really able to continue to set that tone of culture? And it sounds like 2020, because 2020 is one of the ways, but how do you really hold leadership accountable for living that out, even outside of those meetings, but in the day-to-day? I think in the day-to-day, it's hard because everyone's trying to do whatever is on their list. And I don't think that people intend to behave in, an, in a way that's inconsistent with the culture, mm-hmm. but it's aspirational. Yes. You know, it's it, very few people can, can hit on it all the time because there's so many things about being genuine, showing up with purpose, having grit, having, you know, your eye on Vanguard, being focused on giving your clients peace of mind, having an open door policy. We say we have an open door policy, then we close the door to have this conversation, right? right? So there's inconsistencies with all of it. One thing we do that's maybe is unique, maybe it's not, is we, part of our onboarding is to sit down and talk about the azimuth. And what we found over time is it's easier to point out what isn't living the azimuth mm-hmm. than saying what is, because we all intend to behave in a way that makes us a positive contributor to society and don't even realize all the ways that we sort of stub our toe on that. So we use a lot of examples of what isn't and then makes it easier to see what is. And then anyone can call it 2020. So, you know, it doesn't matter what your role is. You can say, hey, can we have a 2020? And is if you start with yourself and you're genuine, people will, one, they'll usually point out some things you did really well, which is helpful to know. Yeah. You know, it's better when I do X than when I do Y. Uh, and it also lets people let their guard down. This is a little bit of a, a, a tangent, but Ted Lasso says, remain curious, not judgmental. I, I'm going to write a book about all those quotes. I, I think it. he's amazing. But um, there was another book that I read that was, you know, more than one line and it was, it's called an everyone culture and it does a deep dive on three or four different companies who have a deliberately developmental organization. They're called DDOs. So like Brightwater is one and every conversation at Brightwater is recorded. Wow. So if you had something to say about me, you might as well say it to me because it's yes. going to be recorded and I can listen to it out of context. So that would just be one example. But in the first paragraph, 
of the first chapter of the book. It says everyone has two jobs, the job they're paid to do and the job that they do for free to make sure they don't look bad, that they're not blamed and that their mistakes are hidden. And that would be exhausting. Yeah. So let's not even bother with that. Let's just own it up front, mm-hmm. lead with vulnerability. Probably the best example we can show humanity is to be vulnerable to one another. Um, and I think that makes ultimately a huge difference in any community, whether it be the work community or, or yeah, your personal life. And, exactly. and that's the thing too, to your point, it's tough to live up to the values in the corporate setting, but even in personal lives, we're never the ideal person that we want to be at all times. And it's giving ourselves that grace to your point, kind of releasing that energy of not trying to cover things up or try to come off a certain way, just being vulnerable, being authentic. Yeah. There's a, um, I had an executive coach, Jason Jagger. He's great. He's got a ton of stuff online. You're interested in hearing it. And he said, people want to look good, feel good and be right. Mm-hmm. And as a newly married person, you yeah. can, <laughs> can probably appreciate that. And when you just go like, you know, my listening skills are not as good as yours. What did you hear that I missed? Right. It's a way to honor something that is important to me. I want to be a good listener. And it's recognizing that it's a unique strength of yours. If we fess up to things that we're not good at, but that we don't value, we haven't really copped to any of it. But one of my blind spots is that I think I can read people better than I can. And I'm wrong so often. Like, that could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the time it is. And so I think I hear something because I'm only half listening. So for me, I have to stop, focus, and make sure that I'm really listening to what's being said and what's not being said mm-hmm. and not take everything just at face value. Wow. So yeah, thinking about just how you've been able to reflect and hone in on those skills as you've scaled this company and IPO'd it as well, which is, I mean... A percent of a percent um, of people in the population ever get that opportunity. But obviously that is no small. So when you think about balancing a marriage and raising two children and just being Elizabeth still in the midst of that, how do you continue to kind of keep yourself in check? And obviously probably learned a little bit more along the way, but you think about elevating yourself and keeping yourself in a sweet spot, not just at work, but in who you are. How did you navigate that? Uh, a couple things. One is I don't think I navigated it well. If you think about like life sort of on a racetrack, I was hitting the rails all the time. <laughs> and I, I the think, sparks, yes, the, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You've got the visual. And I, I think that that probably happens more often than people are willing to admit. Mm-hmm. So on any given day, I was way too focused in one area. And then, and let's say I was way too focused at work. Like I'd be the first one here, 530 in the morning, you know, on my second venti triple shot done ripping and roaring yes <laughs> and then at the last one to leave at 11 o'clock it's hard to be a good parent if you're doing that so someone taught me early on and i wish i could remember who so i could give them credit is they're they can't have all of it once you can't you can have everything but not at the same time so on any given day i would be too focused in one area at the expense of another the hitting the rails on the other side was when i was on mommy mode i wanted to be the best mommy so we're going to make cupcakes and we're going to you know do everything we're going to go to show and tell and we're going to adopt a puppy and we're going to mm. you know fortunately social media wasn't the way it is now because i would have died trying lost it yes, yes. <laughs> and probably on my tombstone it would say she died trying <laughs> but now i think and advice i i freely give it's not worth that much is to focus on doing what you love, who you, who you, and doing it with people you love. And hopefully that is your clients. It's your coworkers Mm -hmm. and colleagues. It's the people you go to church with. It's people who you choose to recreate with. And so it seems less of like, now I'm at work. Now I'm, I'm having a life. Mm -hmm. I have a really good life at work. That's awesome. I did one time say I lived close to my house (laughs) and that was sort of a, Someone asked about my community. I said, I live really close to my house. (laughs) 
And they're like, I think you mean your office. Yeah. Is that what the yeah. little Freudian slip? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I hope I took the rest of that day off. Yeah. I probably didn't, but I know. Yeah, so. Looking back, you would have given yourself off. If Absolutely. <laughs> Clearly. So that sounds like that was a really important learning that you had throughout by having some of those, those railing skids and things. Mm-hmm. So how do you see that reflected within BKS? If it is a reflection of kind of how you want to create an environment where individuals don't have to learn that the hard way, where the structure of the workplace makes it so they could maybe have some more of that integration. That's a good question. I wish we thought of it earlier. I think, um, I think we were always early adopters of being able to work from home some of the time mm-hmm. from the beginning yeah, of the wow. organization. Every colleague, including interns have laptops, not only, you know, cause you can work anywhere yeah, you can take that. and not that you have to work everywhere, but you could. And also in the event of a hurricane, we want to be able to be there for our clients. So to take a laptop and go is better than, you know, wrapping up a big computer. Money outlets when there's no power. Exactly. I think we learned early on just kind of reflecting the, the sort of the work behaviors of the founding partners and colleagues, which was we had people who instinctively were more creative in the morning and some people were super creative at night. And so we, we kind of, I think it's just an entrepreneurial muscle to understand that not everybody can do it from eight to five or yes. from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. And there's mm-hmm. got to be some bits and starts to the workday. So we've always, I believe, differentiate ourselves by the flexibility that we give folks to get work done. Now, it's really important that we serve the client and most of our clients are sort of eight to five. They want to be able to get a hold of someone. So within yes. those confines, as long as there's coverage, you know, we aren't making people clock in and out if they're exempt colleagues. We have an open PTO policy. We give people three days of time off to go serve the community any way they want, whether that's, you know, at our church on serve day or something like that, or it's a mission trip across the world. It doesn't matter. It's just giving back to the community. So I think giving them flexibility and recognizing that we hired people because they were smart and independent and we have to continue to treat them that way. Yes. That, that's a tough point that I've just seen play out of my career. And even in the recruiting space of, I, I think it was actually John Cotter did a leadership training that a previous company I was a part of did where they're like, you hire say eight, nine and tens, you don't hire three or four, but at some point, sometimes people do start to regress and then you realize, did you insert them in an environment that they are not meant to thrive in? Is it mm-hmm. not their right energy zones or is it compressing other areas of their lives? So they're having to take away from work to then, you know, take care of some things. So that's really good that the founders had a blend in approaches that you're able to reflect at a large scale. I wish that I would say it was purposeful, but it was probably like what we had to do at the time. And everyone was exhibiting so much discretionary effort because we were kind of all in it together. And we still are, even though we've got, you know, over 4,000 colleagues and over a hundred offices, there's still that our fancy term would be called esprit de corps oh, wow, that is very fancy. or alchemy. So those are Lowry's words of sort of describing what a team can do together. That's great. So as far as how your employees are able to, colleagues, obviously, we call uh, colleagues. Okay, yeah. your, um, your colleagues are able to really engage in whether it's like the volunteering, the open PTO, but basically feeling like, Hey, they've got that flexibility with working at BKS or just being a part of the team. What do you feel like you guys really do that keeps it simple for them to feel those cultural tones kind of earlier on versus just having to engage in specific benefits? What I would say, the first thing we do and the thing that we've gotten more compliments on, and it's the thing that costs us 
nothing wow. is um, before a new colleague starts, you know, think about and all your years in recruiting, you work so hard to find someone. Mm-hmm. So I would say the first thing is don't stop recruiting when they say yes. Yes. Because when they say yes to you, they said no to someone else. And those people probably aren't just giving up. Dang it, it's like dating. That's what I always say. You can never, you should never stop dating your, even your spouse. <laughs> I've been married too long to, um, <laughs> we'll have a separate conversation about that. So you can tell me how to do that to stay engaged and encouraging because they will have to be making tough decisions and they will have to be having difficult yes. conversations that could be perceived as difficult to them. So helping them through that and then make sure that the team knows, Hey, we just hired Danielle and she's got all these years of experience and this is what she's going to be responsible for. And this is how you're going to work with her and send that to everybody beforehand. So before you even walk in the door, you've gotten 10, 20, 30 emails of people welcoming you, looking forward to meeting you. And then the day you show up, you got to make sure that we're at the front door waiting. We had a great opportunity to learn from Johnny Caraba and he um, you know, has a very successful group of restaurants that he sold to Outback, which is how we met him. Mm. And we said, you know, you, you approach people in such a per- specific way. Can you help us to how do how can we translate that, what you bring to people who come into your restaurant to how we could interact with our colleagues and our clients in the workplace? And he made it really simple. He said, when you have someone over for dinner, you're ready for them. You know what the vibe is going to be. You've got the music set. You welcome them at the door. They don't have to ring the doorbell and find out that you're out back playing the dog. Mm-hmm. You're ready to greet them and excited to have them be a part of your evening. So translate that to a new hire is we're excited to have you be part of the team. Our team is going to be better for it. And we're ready. We didn't shove you in the corner and we don't, we don't have the receptionist poor thing, you know, paging people trying to find someone to, to show you around. And those are the simple things that really do make all the difference. Because to your point, tough decisions have been made. And I think they say, I mean, really, besides the spouse you choose, for the most part, like where you work is one of the biggest decisions mm-hmm. that you make. You think about how much time you spend, usually more waking hours than you are with your family. That to feel like it's a team who values you, who sees you, um, who goes out of their mm-hmm. way to re- really welcome you. I mean, that's awesome. Like, especially in advance of someone's day one, because usually you think about onboarding from, okay, then they show up, they're active. Now we'll engage with them. But really that welcoming and rolling that out prior, I think is such a different. The human connection. I mean, we still give them the backpack and the Tervis tumbler, and, oh, and of course. Uh, yeah. And they're still excited about yes, that. Yes. And you know, take them to lunch the first day. But when we asked them what what made the biggest difference, it was that human connection. Um, I gave you a book today called Smart Tribes by Christine Camaford, and she's amazing. She's spoken to our group several times. She's written three books. This book in particular, she talks about the importance of safety, belonging, and mattering in the workplace. So if you think about it, as you're sitting at your kitchen table, you've got your spot, right? Like you, like it's when you go, when you go visit your mom, you know exactly where you sit at the table. Mm -hmm. You belong safe. You know what you, you know what, how the, how the evening is going to roll out Mm -hmm. and you know that your presence there matters. So if we take that same, those same rights that we want as humans to feel like we belong, to feel like we're safe, to feel like our contributions matter and we bring it to the workplace, we don't have to hide from our mistakes. We don't have to you know, deflect, we can just own it and get good work done. That's awesome. And it's crazy because that sounds like overly idealistic, but it's like, that should be possible. If, if you're intentional and focus on that human connection, you can have that mm-hmm. in, the, in the workplace too. It's just not getting caught up in the work in our own head and remembering everyone does want that. I do. And I think, you know, our culture in particular, you know, it's, it's a relationship business. A couple things, you have to buy insurance if you have a mortgage. And if you have employees, you have to have workers' compensation. And if you don't own your property outright, they want you to have property insurance, right? We're selling something you have to buy from someone. So 
and it's an expensive proposition. So we have to bring more value and focus on the relationship to make sure that we're helping you leverage what you need for your employee population, for your homeowner policy and your umbrella policy and your commercial coverages and make sure that your bankers are happy so that you can go and do the great work that you were put on this earth to do. I love that point because it permeates the customer. So how how you leaders, colleagues treat each other here in the office, in the workplace as peers, that's going to permeate how you greet customers. And just mm-hmm. like what you learned from Johnny Caraba, I mean, it's just, it's setting a tone for everyone holistically and your business is going to experience the benefit of that. When people feel balanced, they feel safe and, and like they belong and they're going to want to make other people feel the same. And I think we've had some prospective client interactions that really were like blind dates. Like we're just going to go to lunch and see if we fit. And we would leave those experiences and we're like, they were great. Weren't they great? And like, I wonder if they all are that way or if this was really <laughs> or just a solid yeah. connection. So I think as businesses become more focused on expense management and insurance is an important part of that. And as there are a thousand different ways to skin a cat, as an, for example, <laughs> they need more creative partners, not just people providing a service. So when we are fortunate enough to earn a client, We want to make sure that we're helping them fulfill their commitments to their employee population and help tie the culture to the benefits that they're offering. Like Outback served such a perfect example early in my career. I'm glad you circled back to that. So that was something that you've mentioned before in articles and things I was reading of really you have an innate ability and a passion and probably what is a large factor in the immense growth that you've had in the benefit space is helping a, a company understand how to kind of tailor their or reflect their culture in their benefits offering. So the Outback example you shared earlier, but does anything else come to mind where you really helped a company kind of materialize that? A couple things. One is with with new employers in particular, you know, we're sort of all in our, our second act kind of thing. Some people have had liquidity events and they've, they've reinvested that and started new organizations. And as they're going out looking for talent, they need a combination of highly experienced people who want to be mentors mm-hmm. and then people fresh out of college who are eager, eager to learn from someone who's kind of been there, done that. And then of course, catapult them. And they do that all the time, especially for me. So we've tried to think about it more of experiences. So if your organization has an open door policy, let that be part of the benefits because not every organization does. And when you're small, you can do that. We're going to have weekly huddles. We're going to have Friday pizza. We're going to have bring your pet to work day. We're going to have pie on March 14th because it's national pie day. Mm -hmm. And those things aren't expensive, but they're sort of unique quirks that sort of help define your culture. Now at the zoo, they have pet insurance because animals are important to them. Here we have a bereavement day if you lose a pet, because in our culture at BKS, pets are part of the family. So I think just trying to hone in on what's specific and different about them uh, and make sure the benefits reflect that. We have a client whose CEO is an accountant. He doesn't think they're in the relationship business. He knows that they're in the distribution business. Mm -hmm. And so the culture there is that of precision, and accuracy and zero defects and profit margin is made from the details. So their benefits offering is a little bit more detailed. You know, this is your medical plan, not this is your choice of five medical plans, yes. right? Very, prescript- how they are. Yes. <laughs> Very much more prescriptive than, you know, we recognize that not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So I think recognizing the culture of the organization, making sure the benefits are consistent not every employer can get up and say, our colleagues, our teammates, our workers, our employees are our most valuable asset. 
that wouldn't be true for them. Fortunately, they're not our clients. Yes. <laughs> but the reality of some businesses is that that isn't the way. And the reality of some business owners. Mm -hmm. So if it's not true, don't say it. Because not saying it, saying something that isn't true is worse to me than the omission of saying something different. Yes. That's a really important thing to, to think about when it comes to understanding an organization that individuals are joining or even that you're trying to create, say, changing or evolving the culture or having it be reflected in the benefits, really creating programs to elevate your people is if leadership is not in that tone, like if that culture is not authentic to those leaders, then that's something that's going to be reflected, whether it's benefits packages or it's just the tone of, of the workplace. So that's another good element for people to be aware of kind of like your gift, but also opportunity of being in tune to really the, the tones of other people mm -hmm. and, and not trying to force things. If you realize, okay, if leadership's on a different page, how do we kind of align with that? And unless they come around, it's going to have to be authentic mm -hmm. to, that, to that organization. And I think, um, leaders, the, the organization sets the tone of how they want leaders to interact with the people that they lead. The leader has to recognize their unique strengths and yes. their blind spots. Yes. So if we've all, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one that's made this mistake is I can't find someone I want with experience. So I'll take the right attitude and then train them. If I don't invest in training them, I've sold them a lie. Mm -hmm. They'll never be successful unless I can find someone else to fulfill that role. So I work with a not-for-profit and um, some members of this leader's teams there's, there's a turnover. And I, and I've come to the observation. I don't know if it's right or wrong that perhaps in this person's mind, the people that she quote leads are a distraction to what she believes her job is mm -hmm. and her being most effective. It's taking right. time away from. Mm -hmm. So if you're not wired to pour into other people own that one of my favorite colleagues here, I won't say her name because <laughs> I love them all. She's an exceptional leader, but she doesn't enjoy it. Mm. She's an introvert. She's a specialist in predictive index. She likes to work alone. She's really good with people, but it taxes her. Mm -hmm. So she's, you know, can I please just be an individual contributor? Please, please, please. I'll be so much happier when I'm just taking care of myself. And eventually I've given in. Yeah. Well, I guess that that comes to her knowing herself too, of recognizing it's going to be a, an energetic pool, mm -hmm. you know, if she's, She's not naturally in tune to people. And then good for her to be able to express that and you to be receptive to that too. But it is a, it is a skill. It is. And, and probably because I'm not a great listener and I didn't want to hear her say that. She probably had to say it multiple times <laughs> to get me to, to listen to her. But I do think that, that in her case in particular, it was a gift to recognize that this wasn't where she got her joy and it didn't matter what her title was. It wasn't as fulfilling to her as being an individual contributor who gets a lot of stuff done. Yeah. And then that's her sweet spot and gives her the energy. Exactly. Go her for recognizing that and you for enabling it. So when you think about giving back to people or pouring into people, you recently have started a scholarship um, in your name yes. with USF. So it's within the risk management space or finance yep. as well. Um, and I just love the perspective to you being a female in that space and just really trying to get back and you think about the next generation to understand what this industry is like and honestly to choose it mm -hmm. as an industry from the start. So I um, would love to hear a little bit about kind of your intentions behind that and um, how you stay involved in that. Well, quickly, I have been a part of USF's Women in Leadership and Philanthropy and I try to get you to join. <laughs> and it basically um, sponsors scholarships for female students. And one of my former colleagues, her name's Chris, 
had done a scholarship. And so I thought, well, if she can do a scholarship, maybe it's something that I could do. And I asked her about it. She gave me all the details and I met with them. And I so wanted to give back to the industry. When I first got in the industry, which was mostly males, the women that were successful, and there were a lot of them, had sort of done it in spite of maybe their male leaders or their Mm. male colleagues. They weren't actually looking to pay it forward yet. They were still trying to toughen this group up. Yeah, prove themselves. Exactly. We. Mm-hmm. I started wearing pantyhose and now I've got a sign that says life is too short to wear pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> I probably haven't worn them in 20 years. But um, I wanted to give back to help mentor a female student to expose them to all the different opportunities, whether they ultimately land in insurance or risk management, and I hope they do, or they find their path somewhere else. I think it's it's really important to dedicate time to teach younger people and more importantly, let them return the favor mm-hmm. so that we continue to, to learn. And that I get more out of it from what they teach me for what you've taught me than I could ever <laughs> the other way around. So I think it's mutual mentoring that I'm so excited about. Yeah. And that's powerful. Just when you think about elevating people, there's a saying that um, a rising tide lifts all ships. And I mm-hmm. just feel like that's so true of when you're pouring into to invest in people, you realize not only is that fulfilling for you, but oh my gosh, I have so much to learn in return. And you're becoming a better leader, a better Elizabeth. Absolutely. Wow. And I think you get to a certain point and you're, you're a lot smarter than I am. So you probably learned it earlier, how much the older you get, you realize how little we do now. Oh my gosh. So I'm yeah super excited to, I've been on spiritual retreat. I'm going to go on another one. The Christine Camelford book that I read yesterday, and I think you would enjoy it, is called Rules for Renegades. And it was about her starting out with all these... She was an entrepreneur who on her day job did programming for Microsoft and Apple and Oracle. But at night, she ran a staffing company and she had a technology company and all these other things and what she learned. And she was the one that in that book talks about people who... It's called GSD, Get Stuff Done. Love I want it. to be that. Yes, you are that. You are that. I, I can attest. That. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there's so many more things that I want to dive into, but um, I really want to just leave the listeners with one more thing. Of if one of them was your mentee, or if all of them are your mentees, really, what's something a piece of advice that you would give them? Whether it's a favorite leadership quote or just something that you wish someone had told you earlier that you think really resonates. I think with the encouragement of my dad, who always wanted me to take risks in my career, as if that's like an easy thing to yeah. take risks about, what has served me well is saying yes. There's so many places and resources to learn how to say no. When I say yes, I am half qualified to do something. And I learned that I don't have to be 100% qualified to do something. I learned mm-hmm. a new skill, met new people, had new experiences. I would never have had that if I was being super protective of my time and my energy. So for me saying yes has been a gift. So I would encourage you. I love that. It's definitely taken you incredible places. (laughs) It's been fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's just such a joy to get to spend time with you in general, like I said, as as a friend, Um, but just really excited for what you're able to share today. And I feel like this is really encouraging for people to understand how realistic it is to, to set tones in workplaces and just think about humans differently in a way that creates a space that they can really find. Well said. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with me and desiring to elevate your people. I hope this conversation energized you to take ownership in your work experience. Let's raise the expectation and create conditions for our people to thrive 
because when we enjoy our work, the business results and our lives show it. If you have any guests you'd love to hear from or dive into a certain topic, please message me on LinkedIn. Another great way to influence the world of work is to share this podcast with others. Until next time, continue to elevate your life and elevate your people.